Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross with the big show for you today. Major tennis season 2020 is behind us, but we roll on with two 250 events this week. Alexander Zverev, Andre Rublev bringing home some hardware. Rublev in St. Petersburg, Zverev in Cologne. And I will get into both of those finals at the top of the show. But the main part of today's episode is a conversation with Brett McCormick, of the Sports Business Journal. He does some of the best reporting, I would argue the best reporting, on tennis from a business perspective when it comes to money, when it comes to structure, uh, some some politics, all of that kind of behind-the-scenes business angle to tennis. Brett McCormick is the guy. So I was really excited to have him on because I feel like a lot of these topics have been swirling recently. We get into the PTPA, we get into a, an exclusive from Brett where he obtained a document that really detailed the ATP's plans for the future. That'll be the bulk of our conversation. Uh, we also get into Hawkeye versus Fox 10 and what is the future of line calling in tennis. So I think you're going to enjoy that. Don't go anywhere, uh, but we will start with these two finals. Uh, let's start with St. Petersburg. Andre Rublev. Winning another title. Man, his one dimension has won five titles in the last 12 months. And I I wanted to find a way to kind of contextualize that and portray how many titles that is in such a short period of time. So I looked at the rankings. I pulled it up. I wanted a veteran, a good veteran, a, a top 10 veteran. And I clicked on David Gaffan. Four career titles. David Gaffan, great player in his prime, 20, 28, 29 years old, uh, four titles in his career. Andre Rublev, five titles in the last 12 months. Not too bad. Four titles in 2020 where he's done the bulk of his work. Only Novak Djokovic has won that many titles this season. And Rublev is second on the tour in terms of uh, victories this year. So his brilliant campaign continues. Um, he beat Borna Choric, who is putting together a lot you know, more consistent results as of late. So Choric is also kind of on a good path. Rublev takes this one 7-6-6-4. I want to start with general match notes. Then I'll get a little bit into the chronology of the match. Not in too much depth. Uh, but first of all, I want to just say... It was a lot of fun. My favorite part about watching this match is we're talking about two players who care about every single point. Unbelievable compete levels. Probably when we're talking about players under the age of 25, these two have maybe my two favorite mental games in terms of their their fight on a point-in, point-out basis. So it was fun to watch them share the court. But it was also evident that Rublev outmatched Chorich from the baseline really handedly. His depth, his pace, his early hitting was too much for Chorich. And Borna looked suffocated and he looked a level below Andre Rublev from the baseline. Not only that, but Rublev was the more consistent player, the more steady, more solid player, less prone to errors throughout. So the medium to long rallies were going. Rublev's way on a very consistent basis. 
Um, and I think one of the major markers of how much better Rublev was than Chorich from the baseline is uh, second serves won. Andre Rublev has long had a second serve problem, which he, he's still working on, but it's still not great. And Rublev won 71% of his second serve points, 17 of 24. Wow, Andre Rublev doesn't always protect his second serve that well. You can go back and watch this match. It wasn't that his second serves was, were great. It wasn't that Borna Chorich wasn't taking control off the second serve return and, and hitting good aggressive returns. That wasn't it either. It was literally that Rublev was recovering and winning every single point. Not every point, but the points that he won. It was generally that he was starting from behind and actually coming back and either come and you know coming back and winning the point. So that was a red flag from Chorich that he could take control with early aggression off the second serve return and still come out on the short end of most of these points. Um, we'll get to it, but uh, let, let me save what I was about to say for later. One of the patterns that I, that I think was really evident and working for Rublev was his backhand down the line. Andre is a player who hits the, his backhand down the line with more comfort and more frequency than 80, 90% of the players on tour. He can pull it down the line with regularity, and he doesn't need some kind of gaping opportunity to do so. He will do it from neutral, and he will do it well, and he will hit it hard. And with Chorich, you want to attack his forehand side. You want to rush him on his forehand side. And I felt that Rublev's ability... To pick his spots, but but to take his backhand down the line with frequency and with effectiveness um, really helped him exploit Chorich's forehand side. And most of the short balls he was drawing was from that side. You'll notice that when Chorich's forehand is rushed, and I've covered this at length, but when, when Chorich's forehand, which is a long technique, his take back is long. His elbow gets very far away from his body, which is not always something that you recommend in, in forehand technique. But when that side is rushed, not only is it error prone, but it's sapped of all its heaviness. And that's something that was really evident during this match that Rublev, again, he takes it early, he hits it hard, he hits with depth, he hits his backhand down the line, he hits his hard forehand cross court. All these things really attack that Chorich forehand side and take away all of his time. And when his time is taken away, if he doesn't miss, he doesn't get anything on that ball. It's sapped of its, uh, it's sapped of its heaviness and then Rublev can attack. Another thing that I noticed in this match is Rublev's first serve is becoming a real weapon. He's getting stronger. He's getting physically stronger. Uh, and he's starting to hit his spots better, which is something that normally comes with age and experience, and it's certainly happening for Rublev. So all of these things propelled Rublev to victory. Why was it close? If it was such domination from Rublev, the reason it was close is Rublev couldn't return serve. 
Rublev won this match despite returning horribly. If you ask him, if if you were to ask Andre off the record, in my opinion, and based on his body language and, and what he was saying to his box and stuff, or not what he was saying, but how he was speaking to his box. I don't speak Russian. Um, I think Rublev would give himself like an F for how he returned. And I would give him a C or a D. Rublev wasn't returning Chorich's first serves for the most part. Couldn't get any kind of read on it. Was leaning the wrong way. Was reacting late. Was just didn't have any kind of timing on his first serve return. And that kept Chorich in the match. And that made this match intriguing. It made it tight at times. And in the first set, it actually looked like Borna was in the driver's seat. Um, because after both players held pretty easily throughout the set, and whenever Chorich got into a tight spot, or Rublev for that matter, they could rely on their serve and their early aggression, uh, it went to a tiebreak. And Chorich played some of the most aggressive tennis that I've seen him play early in this tiebreak, approaching the net, some brilliant points by Borna to go up 5-2 in this breaker. And what happens? Second serve, Chorich hits a good, strong return, takes control, Rublev fends it off, defends a little bit, and Chorich misses an easy forehand off of some squash defense from Rublev. He had all day to set up this forehand. It was a no-pace floater with decent depth, but just an just an easy miss from Chorich. Still with the mini break after he misses this ball at 2-5. At 3-5, Chorich takes charge again off the second serve return. This time, it's it's another continental grip uh, defensive shot from Rublev on the forehand, but this one stays actually low and uh, it's hit with uh, shallow in the court. So Chorich actually needs to move inside the court to hit this. And he blows it again, a midcourt forehand that he hits wide. Another shot that's, it's an attacking shot. It's, it was right there for the taking for Chorich. Two chances to go up and to earn himself set points in the first set, and he misses it. Then at 5-4, he hits a forehand unforced error on the first ball. He had it. It was there. He could have stole this first set, and he makes three forehand unforced errors. At 5-all, it's one of those signature points that I was talking about, signature patterns I was talking about, where Rublev hits the backhand down the line to open up the point. Uh, Then he's able to step in and hit his power angle forehand from inside the court to draw an error. And then Chorich pushes a forehand return long with uh, Rublev um, serving it out at 6-5. In the second set, Chorich is broken with a really loose game at 2-3. He hit a double fault in this game. He hit two backhand unforced errors. The backhand was not as steady throughout this match as he would like. Um, And then the fourth point that Chorich lost in this game was a ball that he chose not to volley. And it ended up landing well inside the baseline. So four mistakes from Chorich in this game. 2-3 gifts it away. And he could not make any progress on Rublev's serve. The Russian did not face a break point. So 7-6, 6-4. Andrei Rublev wins another title. 
He was the better player in this match, couldn't figure out his return, and won the match anyway. Let us move on to the next uh, final, which was Alexander Zverev against Felix Auger-Aliassime. Whenever FAA is in a final these days, you point to his record, his 0-5 coming in, and now it is 0-6. Sasha Zverev winning 6-3, 6-3. This match was not competitive, not particularly entertaining, if I'm being honest, and a really all-around solid performance from Alexander Zverev. I've been impressed with Sasha's forehand ever since David Ferrer came on board. I feel like Ferrer is getting him to just hit through that shot more, to take some topspin off, to hit it flatter, to to kind of draw, uh, put his racket head behind the ball a little bit more instead of dropping it under the ball and brushing up. You know, choosing his spots to really get through the ball and to just flatten that shot out, I think it's it's worked wonders. When Zverev hits that too loopy with his with his kind of Eastern-ish forehand grip, it's just weak. It just doesn't have anything on it. So he needs to he needs to flatten out that shot. That is when his forehand is effective, unless he's defending. And then I could see him just putting some air under it. But other than that, there's no there, there's no damaging quality when Zverev loops his forehand. He needs to hit it flat. And I feel like Ferrer's getting him to do that. Zverev returned extremely well in this match. I was impressed with his first serve return. Felix is someone who who does hit his his first serve extremely hard and has a lot of action on it as well. And Zverev handled that beautifully and played a lot of neutral points off of his first serve return. Most importantly, Zverev found a really good balance between offense and defense, something that he was unable to do in the Yannick Sinner match when he bowed out in the French Open. And he was far too passive, far too defensive with both his intentions and his court positioning. Um, And in terms of patterns... I also found that there was a pattern that was working really well for Zverev, similar similar to Rublev's propensity to hit the backhand down the line, which worked wonders against Chorich in the final in Cologne. I found that, or excuse me, in the final in St. Petersburg. I found that Zverev did a really nice job anticipating Felix's cross-court backhands. Felix is someone who is the polar opposite of Andre Rublev. He's not comfortable taking his backhand down the line. Most of his backhands go cross-court. And when Felix went down the line with his backhand in this match, he, for the most part, missed. Could not find that shot at all. But mainly, he doesn't go for his backhand down the line. He hits his backhand cross-court. So I found that Zverev was really leaning that way. It was giving him that extra moment to set up and he took advantage of that by ripping backhands, uh, aggressive backhands himself. So that was something that I felt Zverev got very comfortable with, just finding the FAA backhand, leaning cross court, giving himself that extra moment to set up because that's what anticipation will give you, and then taking advantage by just really cracking that gorgeous two-hander that Zverev possesses.
With all that being said, FAA was not good in this match. And he will be really disappointed and was really disappointed, not only with this match in isolation, but also the fact that he can't seem to play well in a final. Because not only has he lost six finals in a row, he has not won a set. Now, here was my stance after Marseille when Tsitsipas beat Felix in February earlier this year. I defended FAA and I said, look, all of these finals that Felix is playing, he is not the better player. Ever since losing to Laszlo Gera in Rio and Benoit Paire in Lyon, uh, Matteo Berrettini on grass, Gael Monfils, uh, Monfils rather, when he was very hot in Rotterdam, and then Tsitsipas in Marseille. Of those matches, of those last three finals, I favor Felix in none of them. Similarly, against Zverev in Cologne, I do not favor Felix. Zverev is the better player, so I don't find it overly alarming that Felix hasn't been able to win any of these, especially taking into account his youth. But if he's not going to play well, and if he's not going to show up and play his best tennis, if he's not going to at least push his opponents, yeah, now it's, it's beginning to become an alarming pattern. I still stand by this. The day will come when FAA is going to play an opponent in a final who he should beat, who he is superior than, he is better than. How is he going to handle that? Is he going to take care of business and win a final against a player who he is more talented than? That time is going to come, and I'm very curious to see how he handles that situation because it's inevitable. That's what I'm kind of waiting for. But FAA should be pretty disappointed in this. Far too many backhand errors. The technique even looked uncomfortable at times. But with his backhand, it's not that his intention is bad. I don't think he goes for too much on his backhand. I just think sometimes it's an imprecise shot. It's erratic. He doesn't get his footwork right. And um, I, I don't... Sometimes I think technically it can can go awry. On his forehand it's a whole it's a whole other story. His forehand he misses it cuz he's going for the wrong shot. He's pulling the trigger with no advantage in the rally. And one of the ways you can really tell that that's the case is when he misses wide from neutral. You should not miss wide from neutral. It doesn't make any sense. Um if you're missing wide from neutral you are you're going for too much. You're picking a bad target. You're pressing. Um, and I find that Felix is doing that often. He has no advantage in the rally. He should be trading the ball cross court and he's missing wide. Shot selection. Now when he gets an attackable ball, a ball that is short, a ball where he can step inside the court or a ball where his opponent is out of position, a ball that he has every right to go all out for an attack. He's missing too many of those balls as well because he's not giving himself any margin. It just seems like he is aiming for the lines practically. 
And in this case, he's just, he's missing by an inch, two inches, three inches. It doesn't matter. You should not miss those balls. Maybe it's because he he's not comfortable enough in his transition game to just add a little bit of margin, hit a more comfortable approach shot, and finish the next ball at the net. I don't know. But he constantly misses these, these mid-court forehands when he is in total command. So far too many unforced errors. Zverev played a great match, made him play extra balls, Was def- uh, could, you know, could play defense, could play offense, and just was the better player by far. There was no suspense in this match whatsoever. By the way, uh, another thing, I know that I kind of uh, lamented the quality, the viewing quality of this match. Another thing was the camera angle was terrible. You know, up in Mars, up in outer space, and the court wasn't mic'd well either. You couldn't really hear the ball hitting the the racket, which or hitting the strings, which always detracts from the experience, in my opinion. That is a good segue to uh, our interview here on Monday Match Analysis, because with Brett McCormick of the Sports Business Journal, I get into tennis as a business, tennis as a product, and what the ATP's plans are moving forward. My first question to Brett is where I'll pick it up. One of the things I noticed in McCormick's, one of McCormick's most recent pieces about the ATP's plans for the future, for 2022 more specifically, is that according to this ATP document, which detailed their plans, tennis commands just 1.3% of global media television rights values. So of all the money that goes into sports, tennis is only is only the beneficiary of 1.3% of that money, of that television money, that, that ad revenue that goes, uh, or, or not the ad revenue, but uh, the rights revenue that goes to television networks or streaming networks or whatever it may be. 1.3%, despite the fact that tennis is the world's is the world's fourth most popular sport. So that's where I started with Brett. I asked how could this possibly be? Surely the ATP is looking to change this. Yeah, it underperforms in media rights. And so that's that's not good because that's money left on the table. Um, so a good example is uh, American football, which uh, I think in this case, I think it included college football as well, but um, at the least the NFL is I think around the 10th most popular sport in the world, you know, it's essentially limited to the U S um, basically uh, maybe a little bit of Mexico and Canada and some other places. Um, and they have uh, their piece of the pie is 15%. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, considerably larger than tennis with considerably fewer fans. So that's a sport that's really, I guess you could say overperforming. Um, and so that is absolutely something that they, that they are uh, dialed in on. And Gaudenzi has a big TV background. Um, you can really see in this plan, and I wish more people could have seen it. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, share it publicly because they're, they're a private entity. So, you know, if it, if it had been like a school or a taxpayer type thing, you know, I would have shared that plan, but uh, you know, I'm trying to not get sued. Um, but the, <laughs> but the plan really has Gaudenzi's like fingerprint all over it. And so, as you saw in the story, he used like a 
uh, you know, 30, 30,000 foot version of it to get hired, you know, and then, and then dialed in a little more when he talked to the players and then a little more when we talked to the tournaments and then got to that 92 page document. And, uh, you know, one of the things was, I think, uh, that kind of coincided well with 2020 and the pandemic was, you know, there were in the plan, there's a lot of ideas about how to, uh, diversify revenue and, and, and kind of create new revenue streams, uh, more consistent and like reliable revenue streams. And, you know, this falls like right at the top of that, probably, uh, media rights, pooling media rights is something that they see that can really, um, be like a, a real benefit to everybody. I mean, cause honestly, if the rights were pooled, that means they would be sold together. And that means it would be easier for fans to find tennis, you know, because they're all going to be together. Um, so that in itself, I mean, tennis fans should be, uh, if they don't know what to think about pooling, I think generally they should be, you know, in favor of it because it's bringing more money into sport and it should make, uh, it should prevent the, the tournaments and different levels from being, you know, kind of carved up. So if they want to pull it all together, does that mean right now that every tournament is off on their own to find their own television deals? No, you got it's you got some weird chunks. So, for okay. example, the NFL, uh, all the rights are together. You know, mm-hmm. uh, NBA, all the rights are together. Um, and there's some little side deals and stuff with regional sports networks and things. But it's it's much easier to understand tennis. Um, if you just look at, I mean, first of all, you got all these different countries across the world, so they have a different situation in almost every country. Um, they they do have a different situation in every country, uh, and then you've got. <clears throat> The Masters 1000s that are pulled together, um, some of the 500s are pulled, and then I think it's 18 of the 38 250s are pulled. Uh, so not even all of them are, are doing that. And so um, just the basics of that is is when you pull your rights together, you offer a better, you know, product because you have like critical mass. Um, and so you can see where 18 of the 38 250s pulling together it's kind of a weird product, you know, like it, right. it, you're missing a lot. And, um, you know, I don't have a map of where the 18 are, but, you know, I don't know what the global dispersal is, you know, it could, could be missing an entire region. I'm, I, you know, I don't know for a fact, but, um, so if you were able to come together and say, you know, we, we will pull every level of ATP tournament in one thing and, and the broadcaster got 64 tournaments, um, that would be, way more um potentially way more valuable to the uh broadcaster it would definitely be way more valuable for the atp they're going to get you know uh more of a they're going to get well larger money for for starters but i mean it's just i i think it's it's kind of one of those the more you learn about it it's sort of a no-brainer really so the the issue is you got to get everybody on the same page so that's what has always been difficult in tennis for any issue and and this is you know no exception Phase one for the ATP is getting all of their tournaments that they own all together. But then phase two is incredibly ambitious because uh, we all know about all of tennis's different governing bodies from the four grand slams, to the ITF, the WTA to the ATP. And it seems like God Enzi, the the new CEO of the, of the ATP, he'd love to bring everyone together. And, you know, I mean, everyone, I mean, is that remotely possible? It seems pretty ambitious. Yeah, it is. This is like the moonshot. So I think it's feasible with the WTA uh, for sure. And I think that's really where, where they'll focus first, you know, to try to get that sorted out. I think that would be in itself, if they got that done, would be great. And and kind of the idea is to align, not, not 
merge the tours necessarily or anything like that. I, I don't think the WTA wants to do that anyway. They have a hard earned brand, you know. Um, but what you would do, you would probably see more combined events. Uh, they would probably share a website. They'd have more common social media um, pulling their rights, you know, so then you could have all of touring tennis, um, you know, just you would just be missing the Grand Slams and like Davis and Fed Cup at that point. Um, and so, again, you would have a, a pretty strong product. And really, these two are stronger together because um, if you've got, you know, like Federer, Djokovic and, and Nadal on the way out at some point, um, you know, maybe you can lean on Coco and some others for some star power until you kind of get some others to, to step up and, and become sort of those those uh, really recognizable figures. So there is like a lot of benefit um, from working together like that. There's also like cost benefit stuff, too. You can cut out um, some of the redundancies. So, I mean, you would have like one social media group, you know, and, and would um, that might cost some people some jobs. But I mean, that would save these tours a lot of money in the long run. And I think there's a lot of uh, momentum for that, especially with the pandemic, you know, where they're, they're going to need to like cut some costs. And so I think there's momentum there. The Grand Slams and the ITF, I think, are a bit more uh, difficult. Uh, for starters, the Grand Slams have all the leverage. I mean, uh, they make, I think it's 58% of the revenue in tennis um, is from four tournaments. And, you know, the other the other, uh, whatever's left 42 or something is, you know, basically what 120 WTA and ATP tournaments and then Fed cup and Davis cup. So, I mean, that is a very skewed power dynamic. And so I don't know if that's feasible, that would have to be, I don't really even know what would happen for, for them to really seriously consider that because they have so much autonomy and so much power, um, without doing that. But I think getting the, um, ATP and WTA would more aligned in that regard would be really realistic. I also, the ITF is tricky too. I mean, Davis cup has got such a long uh, contract with the cosmos group, you know, you're always talking about uh, in the last year or so kind of combining the ATP cup and Davis cup. And that's really tricky because there's a long contract involved. So um, again, that one is, is a little harder, uh, but you know, I think, I think the WTA and ATP can, can make something happen pretty soon. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And for uh, the, the Grand Slams certainly don't appear to have a lot of incentive, but ATP, yeah. WTA, there seems to be some benefits there. Um, if, if someone is, is watching or listening to this and they're thinking, I don't care how much money they make, what do I care about this? Here's one thing that's a material change for the fans. It, it seems that the ATP wants to move to two-week masters 1000s tournament what's the tournaments what's the logic behind that yeah this is oh, it was a big section of the of the plan uh and it's enhancing the premium product so this is getting you know and if you think about the atp you take away the slams which are you know they don't own or control you know the premium product is the nine uh, masters 1000s and so they want to make those longer uh they want to give um the best players like more rest. They want to spread the, the calendar out. So, or the schedule out so that they're not playing at the same time and you got to pick who you want to watch. Um, and then, you know, I think also some of them were going to extend to like 12 days. So it's not even a full uh, two weeks. So that would, that would give them, you know, a little bit more rest as they're traveling to their next uh, place. And that's the idea of keeping the stars healthy. So you want to enhance the premium product. I mean, that's really where, what is in, uh, what is the idea there? And so that's why you end up with some of these two fifties that are going to go into the second week of these 
Masters 1000s tournaments. And uh, that's pretty controversial for some obvious reasons. But, you know, the thinking is, again, like we want to have those tournaments are not the premium product. I mean, they're important. You know, they they are the foundation. They offer um, chances of success and bigger paychecks for lower ranked players. But, uh, you know, they're not they're not as important as Indian Wells or, you know, uh, Miami or any of the others, um, you know, across the globe. I feel for the two fifties, but this seems like a yeah. great thing for, for the fan because anyone who's consumed a masters 1000 tournament has, has said at some point, especially in the first couple of days, Holy crap. There's five amazing matches going on yeah. right now. The, there's it's a 64 player draw and mm-hmm. you have these incredible matches on outer courts. If you spread it out, you can simply consume more of the product as a fan. So I, I really like that from, from the fans perspective for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, I, I do have some sympathy for the two fifties though. And that's, um, something I'm working on now is, you know, they really become almost, uh, I don't, I'm not sure how to say it. Like, uh, not quite welfare beneficiaries, but they are really propped up and, and kind of take this one on the chin, you know, so the tournaments that do move into the second week are going to be subsidized, although it's not clear how much, you know, they're going to get, um, you know, they're not really going to be able to market players, um, you know, because they're going to have guys that show up that lost uh, in the first round or, you know, early rounds of the, uh, of the, of the coinciding masters 1000 tournament. Um, you know, I don't know how big that of a deal that is for two fifties. I think a lot of people probably go to two fifties for, to go to a tournament, not necessarily to, to see a certain guy, but you know, there are cases where that would be, you, you could think like, Isner in Atlanta or Winston-Salem would be a big draw, you know, and if, if you didn't know if he was coming um, or he wasn't able to come, that would, that would hurt those two places where he has, you know, personal connection. Um, and they, you know, that's, um, there's, there's some other stuff. I mean, they're trying to uh, help the two fifties make money with the pooling and, and giving them uh, equity stakes in some of the like ATP media and the, the data innovations thing that they're creating. Um, so that should help them. But I mean, two fifties, not, not all of them make money. Um, and, and mm-hmm. I, that's as fair as I can say it. There's probably, I, I, I'm not sure a percentage, but, um, you know, their profits are like $125,000, a year. They're not exactly crushing it, you know, but they are important. They do, they do give the tour like really great geographic coverage and, you know, span the globe and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I think one thing that, that may have to happen there is is the number of them decrease um, because the 250s don't like having the three event weeks. Um, and and those, I think, decrease from nine to six with this 2022 uh, proposed calendar. Um, but that's with some of them going into the second week of those master's tournaments, which, you know, I think uh, any of them would prefer to avoid. Um, and so you still have six weeks where you've got three events and that's that's kind of you you look at that and think like uh, you know is that a good thing to have uh three smaller tournaments going on at the same time uh, and I, I think the 250s definitely would tell you like no way that's that's rough right just to close the book on this what are the chances that we see these changes in 2022 does this need to be approved or is this pretty much a hey this is our plan this is what's going to happen yeah i it needs to be approved. And I think they're trying to do that by the end of the year. That was the original plan. You know, of course, things have gotten in the way, but um, you know, the, the pandemic, but also the PTPA is a bit unforeseen. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I think there's a chance 
I, I, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think the negotiations would be, you know, um, serious. And I think the two fifties are going to need more information on some of this stuff, like the subsidies. I know the masters 1000s tournaments are going to want to know how much is their category fee increasing now that they have category protection for, you know, five decades or whatever, you know, I'm sure their fee is going to go way up and they'll want to know, you know, how much. So there may be some negotiations around that as well. So I don't know. I, it's hard to say. I mean, the pandemic is like the wild card and all that as well. So in a normal year, it would be challenging to get all these people on the same page. And, and so let alone with what's going on, I don't, in some cases, I think that will make people move quicker. And in some cases, I think it'll slow things down. So it's hard to say. Let's hit on the PTPA since you mentioned yeah. it. It was this big revolution, this wave during the Western and Southern Open. And now it's it's gone pretty quiet. Some of the main criticisms were the timing of it or the vagueness of their plans. Yeah. Uh, some of the people who, who built it up as a great thing just pointed out to the systematic imbalances that exist in tennis. What's next for, for this association? Because I, I, we haven't heard much from them recently. Yeah. So Gaudenzi told me that the PTPA and ATP are waiting till after the ATP tour finals uh, to start like talking seriously, I guess. Uh, and that's going to be a big deal. Um, but, you know, I think in the meantime, I think that's good for the PTPA because it can give them some time to get their, you know, ducks in a row. Um, but with something that they had been thinking about for a long time, but when it happened, there were a lot of aspects that were not buttoned up. And so while they had been talking and thinking about this for a long time, it, it you know, not everything was in place when they rolled it out. And so, I mean, to be blunt, it was like a really terrible rollout, um, they couldn't have launched in really a much worse of a way. Um, and I'm not saying that they don't have validity or like some of their, I think some of their arguments definitely have validity. I think um, conflicts of interest are going to slowly like drain the sport, you know, dry. Um, and that's something they're really against. Um, I think they also could do with outside help sort of like a union head, although they can't unionize, um, but somebody that's not necessarily a tennis person, you know, who doesn't have any of these conflicts, but that is, you know, a sports business person and understands the game. Um, I think somebody like that would help them, you know, because they're players running this group and they're not business people, um, even though some of them know what they're talking about, but they're, I mean, they're simply not. Um, so there, there's legitimacy to what they're, what they're trying to talk about, but it's just confusing why they didn't think that they could do that within the system, which compared to many other leagues, uh, sports across the country, uh, across the world is, you know, set up fairly favorably to the players. Um, they do have more of a voice than a lot of uh, players groups across the world. Um, and they don't have, although they may disagree right now, they don't have a, a traditionally directly confrontational relationship with the uh, management side, you know, the tournament side, um, as opposed to like sports like ba major league baseball and the NBA and the NFL where in MLS, where you have strikes, you know, I mean, it doesn't get more contentious than that. And so you've never had that in, um, or you haven't had that in tennis in a long time. So I just think they, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what they wanted to wanted to do. And that's where a lot of people are confused. They didn't, they didn't have a platform ready um, they didn't really have a structure ready. Um, and then the timing was brutal. I mean, it's, it's been a bad year for tennis, especially, you know, very hard year for a global sport. 
And, you know, just as it was getting going, first Grand Slam back, you know, to announce this, I just thought was kind of tone deaf and just made them look bad. Honestly, I, th- I think it undercut their argument, you know. And then the other the other thing down that a- avenue is really their, their beef, to me, I think, is with the Grand Slams. That's where the money is to be made, uh, where, where, you know, they can get a bigger share. Um, and so, again, uh, you know, unveiling yourself right now without being completely organized and, uh, and, uh, having solidarity. I mean, you can't go to the slams right now and say, we want more money, you know, especially given what they're trying to do, um, you know, to, to have these big tournaments right now. So I just think they just missed the mark on, on their launch. And then the, probably the most important thing is if they don't have solidarity, it's going to go nowhere. And right now the, most four the four most famous players in the game are are against them and you saw the player council they just basically reinforced it with people that are not in favor of the ptpa um so i mean they essentially in some way lost their voice at the table um through the normal means you know which ensures that they'll have to do it more aggressively and that always that always confused me when vashik and and the others would say um you know we're not doing this to be aggressive towards the ATP or to, um, you know, antagonize them or whatever. I mean, that's nice. And you can be polite and, you know, be nice on the face of it, but their very action was aggressive towards the ATP tour because it was basically saying, we want to, we want to take out the body that you have for players and put our body in. I mean, that they have to agree to that, obviously. And so, you know, you're, (laughs) <laughs> that in its nature is a bit of a re- an aggressive request, you know, when this system has been in place for 30 years. So, um, but I would just say like <clears throat> the thing people need to think about with the PTPA is if they don't get, you know, a uh, uh, major majority of players, including, you know, those, those, those important ones, like there's no shot. It has no chance. So I think that's probably what they're working on. I'm guessing I haven't heard from them in a while. I think they're, you know, maybe focusing on tennis right now, but, um, you know, they, they told me they were good with God plan the strategic plan. Like they love that. So it's kind of a weird situation where they don't have an issue with management. They have an issue with the structure. And so the confusing thing to me is why would you not work within that structure to try to change it instead of just pulling out and saying, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not participating in the structure, but let us be in the structure. Or, I don't sure. know. It was, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a lot there. Um, a lot of good insights. I, I don't have that much to uh, to add, but we'll follow yeah. the story and we'll, you know, hopefully get more clarity about yeah. what exactly they're looking for, because I think we, we are still waiting on that. A bit of breaking news late last week, Tennis Channel uh, grabbed full rights to all ATP tournaments here in the United States. So ESPN uh, will only broadcast three tournaments in, um, on the year, which is the Australian Open Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, everything else is going Tennis Channel's way. I'll, I'll ask you pretty vaguely, what, uh, what were your reaction to that? Well, this is a, a culmination of a 15-year effort by Tennis Channel. So for them, it's like a huge win. I mean, uh, like this is what they set out to do, almost. You know, they got those three remaining, but um, I'm sure they're setting their sights on them at some point. Uh, so for them, it's a, it's a major win. The question for me is, and I think for a lot of people is, um, does, does TV or streaming attract casual fans anymore? 
And so Tennis Channel has become synonymous with, uh, you know, avid fans, people that that are really like tennis junkies that are going to be watching, you know, if they're in the U.S., they're going to be watching a tournament in the Czech Republic at 9 a.m. while they read the paper or whatever. Um, and so people were concerned, I think, that tennis is going to be on a channel that is not a mainstream channel. It is on cable still, um, and they claim 60 million viewers, but, you know, uh, so are a lot of other channels as well that probably don't exactly have 60 million viewers. We also don't know anything about their streaming numbers because they don't uh, publish those. But so it's on a niche channel to a degree. But I, I don't immediately think that that's a bad thing because to me, like I want the question for me is like, does TV or streaming attract casual fans? I mean, do people stumble onto stuff anymore? The way we view the way we view things now is a lot different, you know, than when you used to flip the channel. Like that's a, that's a very different, different experience now. And so um, that, and that ATP uh, strategic plan had a lot of interesting stuff about media, as you surmised, um, including like, uh, let me read this, 55% of sports fans are consuming live sports, you know, watching games and matches. Um, the other 45 consists of, uh, of things they're watching, consists of highlights, off-field content, in-play clips, et cetera. Um, and then you've got a sport like tennis, which is really driven by stars um, and individuals, uh, some of whom, a lot of whom are social media, very savvy, um, you know, very, very good at it. And, you know, like somebody like Coco Gauff or Naomi Osaka or Tsitsipas that are digital natives. It's just what they've grown up with and they're used to it. You know, they don't have to um, make this effort. They don't have their agent necessarily nudging them to post something or whatever. So to me, that. 45% seems like where you drive new fans, where you attract people with uh, tweeners, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, people getting, you know, hitting uh, lines, people in the, in the throat with the ball or, you know, things, things like that kind of controversial highlight, you know, interesting moments. I, I think that in this day and age is what's driving fandom in a lot of ways. And I mean, I think uh, tennis was like so far ahead of a lot of sports with its focus on the individual. I mean, you have a lot of fans of the NBA that are LeBron fans. They don't, they don't care mm -hmm. what team he plays on. Um, and tennis, I think, really needs to highlight that more, you know, and, and make more of an effort to promote the personalities because that's who people are going to say, oh, Sitsipas, interesting, like, you know, good looking guy, really weird, deep thinker, maybe, you know. Uh, maybe kind of fake, but, you know, still kind of funny and thought provoking. Like, let me see more of this guy. Where do I find him? And then, and then they get to tennis channel. Like that's, that's where I feel that it's going. And so that's why I don't think it's a negative thing necessarily for tennis because tennis is such a niche sport in the U S already. Um, it's, it's really in some ways struggles uh, with ESPN, you know, because I don't think it gets the coverage it should get. So, you know, while ESPN is maybe still willing to do that on, on the slams, you know, I don't, I don't think they're willing to do that on other tournaments. So I, I think it's ultimately, I think it's a good thing and it's really down to the sport and even tennis channel um, to promote the uh, people and stories and et cetera, that are going to drive new fans as opposed to relying on, um, you know, channel surfers to find tennis. Um, because the, the good thing is when you do convince people that tennis is interesting and worth a look, now it's mainly on one channel. So it's a lot easier to find, you know, as opposed to uh, there's countries, I think, I think it was, I had a list somewhere, but it's Australia and I think Germany that have like six or seven different broadcasters of tennis. I mean, that would be 
You don't want that. That's a that's a challenge to navigate, you know, and, and tennis is already not easy on a, on a TV schedule because matches run long or short or people, you know, have to pull out because of an injury or, you know, so it's not a really TV friendly sport to begin with. So I think having it on a, a channel that does not care if there is a, a, somebody pulling out injury wise or whatever, um, or that a match runs five sets and goes five hours and 55 minutes, you know, I think that's good for the sport. I think that's very good. And ESPN's other programming legs do not promote tennis. So it's just kind of, it just pops up uh, on a kind of this infrequent basis. And I have so much trouble imagining, you know, just one of my friends who's not interested in tennis. I don't think that they're going to flip on an Indian Wells match. And if they had no interest in watching the match before, I don't think they're watching the match. And I, I tend to fall on the side of, it's just an old fashioned way of looking at things. I don't think the move to tennis channel is going to, uh, leave the potential for new tennis fans in the dust i i'm not really yeah. uh, i agree and um i think ahead. uh yeah no i i agree let's end on uh right. fox 10 versus hawkeye are you looking for your dog no it's it's uh it's my wife <laughs> oh, okay because <laughs> i thought I, do you have a dog do you have a dog I, I, do. I, heard- I have a wife and a dog. I have both. Okay. Okay. Cause I, I thought I heard a dog. Uh, <laughs> I did too. That's why I was, I was like, is there a ghost in here? And I turn around. She's trying to get her head, her headset for work. Uh, um, let's end on Fox 10 <laughs> because you spoke to uh, their CEO. Fox 10 is a, a digital imaging technology. I'd call it probably the only competitor uh, with uh, Hawkeye. Yeah. There was a lot of talk over the two, I, I wanted to call it a clay court season. Even in the abbreviated in the abbreviated clay court season we had, there was so much discussion about Hawkeye on clay and, and ball marks and how ineffective and what a mess this entire system is. Fox 10 might be the solution here. Do you know are they are they attacking this as we have the best technology on clay, especially? I think so. Yeah. And they're I didn't realize this, but they're used in 30 tournaments. So mm-hmm. they're already on a bunch of different surfaces. They're in a, a lot of Asian tournaments. Um, so they are definitely, I would say, number two. But when it comes to clay, I think they're number one. And, and I think that's at the moment unquestioned. And they're like in the pole position to, to get approved. You have to, it's like a technical committee that kind of consists of somebody from all of the seven, you know, biggies. Um, and so you kind of have to do the trials and then, you know, there's a, there's a process. And so their trials got upended a little bit this year by the, not a little bit, got upended this year by the pandemic. And so, um, they were able to do Rio and then they did a fed cup match, um, the Rio ATP tournament and a fed cup match. And then they were going to do Charleston, uh, WTA and that got canceled. They were going to do Madrid that got canceled. Um, and there might've been one other, um, but anyway, so they, their their trial on clay is slowed down. But um, and they pointed out to me they're also tr- they're also working on like a, a version of Fox Ten Live, something that would call like Hawkeye Live was doing um, at the U.S. Open. So, um, but yeah, they are, and this is like it's complicated. So clay is the most difficult surface, as everybody knows, and the re- one of the main reasons for that, especially when it comes to uh, you know, like uh, these high-tech ways of calling, uh, line calling, 
is that the surface changes like every point. It's not the same as when it started, uh, you know, whereas a hard court is not going to change like that. Even a grass court is not going to change nearly as much. Um, and so a lot of the impression I got was that other technologies use kind of a preconceived image of the court. Whereas one of the things that Fox 10 does, and I think this is one of the things that slows it down some, and I think something they've really tried to work on is it's taking, it's updating that throughout. And so that's a big difference um, because you've got the most updated version of the court. I mean, every time somebody walks somewhere on the court, you know, they're, they're impacting it. And so, and then the other thing is um, you've got the potential with Hawkeye is like when you have the, so you got the line and the balls over top, the ball landed out, but as it compressed, it, part of it went over the line. Um, and so where you've got Fox 10, they're shooting from the ground. You can see that it landed out. Um, they have grainy photos and they're kind of difficult to see on TV. That's not something they're really overly worried about. You know, I think they are committed to accuracy, but it's not as TV friendly as Hawkeye is. Uh, and so I think that's something that they have to definitely improve for the broadcast um, aspect of it. Cause I mean, that's, let's face it, that's a bigger deal than the, however many thousands are in the, in the stadium. Um, mm -hmm. So next year is going to be big for them. I think they're trying to pick up the pieces and, and resume these trials and get that sorted out. I know they've been in conversations with Roland Garros, but I don't know how serious those are because uh, they didn't respond to um, my email. So, you know, it could just be that they're aware of them or, or you know, I don't know if they're like where we want to do it next year. But um, I think that's coming down the line. And to me, it, it's like, I get that there's traditional aspects of sports, but if people are not figuring this out yet about me, I mean, I like, you know, keep it pushing, you know, let's move forward. Uh -huh. And the clay argument thing with the lines, people pointing at the spots, cute, like a little bit, but like when it comes down to like the French, you know, Roland Garros, I mean, you don't want major matches decided by trying to figure out which, uh, it's, they remind me of like the uh, one giant step for mankind on the moon. You don't want people like trying to figure out which step was the first, you know? I mean, it's just, it just seems like unnecessarily old fashioned. I wouldn't say, that you have to use like Hawkeye Live or Fox 10 Live necessarily. Although I'm like, personally, I would prefer those, but um, I don't think you have to get rid of people fully. I think it is a cool element, but that's just a lot of pressure on the on the umpires that is really unfair. And then especially um, this past tournament where a lot of broadcasters were using Hawkeye like on the TV, sort of undercutting the umpires. I mean, I, I didn't think that was really right. You know, I mean, VAR and soccer has got a lot of critics but it's accessible to everybody. Everybody sees the same thing. So it's not like you can't, you don't have to yell at your TV and say, it was out, you know, like you could see it, you yeah. know, that, that person has the same person talking in their ear, you know? And so that's the way to, to do something like this. And so um, they either need to do all of it, you know, and, and implement Fox 10 or, or whatever technology um, or get rid of it on the broadcast. Cause it's, it's, it's not really fair. And, and, you know, especially if you're using another company's, um, technology on the broadcast that's not approved by any of the tours or the governing bodies you know I mean how do you know that their thing is accurate when it's not even being tested by the tours to be used in actuality so I mean I'm not pitching for Fox 10 but you know I just thought that that was yeah. like a very valid and fair point I still have questions about how accurate Hawkeye is on clay because I mean we've we've heard I think a, a lot of theories and as you said oops the, the court always changing and, yeah. and factors like that. But uh, I feel that there, there's a lack of expert voices on this topic, really explaining yeah. 
this is the margin of error. I have not heard from anyone because of the difficulties of clay. This is the margin for error for Hawkeye because we know on hardcore it's 3.6 millimeters. Well, if clay is, is more inaccurate. Okay. Well, what is it on clay? And we haven't heard these specifics from anyone. Right. Right. And, and that's like, um, that's like, you know, needing tennis channel to give you the, uh, streaming subscribers. I mean, they're just not going to do that or any numbers they give you, you have to like take it with a grain of salt, you know? So, mm-hmm. so of course they're going to give you the hard court number because they feel strong and confident about that, but they probably do not about their, about their clay court, you know, uh, percentages. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's like a really, really complicated thing. I mean, when I was talking to people about uh, the new courts at the U.S. Open, I mean, the the complexity of that was wild, and that was hard court, you know. So you can only imagine that's something that changes every play. I mean, every time the ball is bounced, you know, it's it's a it's a really interesting surface. I mean, I don't I don't know that you really have a sports surface like it, except maybe like if you had, I don't know how ice works, but hockey, maybe I would think bowling maybe bowling with the, with the like oil and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. They go crazy with the oil patterns and stuff. I don't, I don't know anything about it, but. Right. Right. I mean, so there's others that are, that are weird like that, but I mean, it's just, um, it seems to me, it's just the, if I ran a clay tournament, I would want to be keeping up with everybody else because it makes it even more of kind of a antiquity, you know? Um, And and if you're going to have uniformity across the slams and the tours, you know, they, they need to have, line calling help on uh, clay as well i think i think umpires would probably you know appreciate it i'm sure they would well brett this has been great um for everyone remember you can uh, read brett mccormick at the sports business journal where he does awesome reporting on tennis thanks so much for taking the time and coming on yeah i appreciate it